You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Carrying on this morning in the book of Habakkuk. Jump back into here after a few weeks off for Holy Week. Habakkuk chapter 2, minor prophet. Way at the back of your Old Testament, not the farthest back, but pretty darn close. If you can find the back of the Old Testament, just go to the left four books and you'll find Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, I'll read verses 2 through 4 and we will get right into it. Got some, I'm excited this morning, we got some good stuff to get into, so I want to get right into it. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Habakkuk, but the context for this passage in Habakkuk is that in the midst of difficult trials that God is going to take his people through, those who are righteous, those who are truly his through these trials, they will live by faith. They're going to trust God even through the tough times he's going to take them through. If you remember earlier chapters, Habakkuk has complained at God saying, the nation's full of sin. They're wandering from you. They are transgressing against your law. And God, something must be done. And God says, you're right, Habakkuk, something must be done. I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and they are going to come in, and they're going to take away my people into captivity in Babylon. Habakkuk objects. He's like, wait a second. How can you punish the unrighteousness of the nation of Israel by bringing a more unrighteous nation for the judgment? And But God says, don't, don't, don't deny it. Write this vision down. This surely is what I will do. I have promised it will happen. I have stated it will come to pass. The righteous one is one who will live by faith. And God is calling his people to trust him and not in themselves. They are called to trust God and not in their own interpretation of life and their circumstances. So easy to live totally subjective, immersed in your own situation, immersed in your own circumstances and diagnosing the way things have gone in your life and saying, this must be what's going on. And it'd be easy for the people of God to look at the circumstances that God is going to take them through and say, God has abandoned us. God has thrown us away. We have been disregarded. But God says, no, the righteous live by faith. They're trusting God. They're trusting his promises, even in the midst of moments in life that look like God is not fulfilling his promises. The righteous live by faith. It's important to see that because this is the way that the writers of the New Testament interpret this passage. We looked at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. 
his usage is exactly along this line that trial is coming, difficulty is coming, and the righteous live by faith, not diagnosing their life by, or their relationship with God by how things go in this life, but they trust God and his promises. The writer is calling God's people to trust him in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances. But trust for what exactly? Trusting God for what? Is faith just some nebulous concept that we hold on to? It's often talked about in that way. You know, you see the memes, the, the, the pictures on Facebook or wherever, or just the pictures on people's walls about somehow having faith is, is meaningful. Uh, don't worry, just, just have faith. Well, in what? And for what? I mean, the, the, the idea of having faith, I mean, you can have faith that you're going to hit a home run as baseball seasons start. You can walk up and you just got to have faith you're going to hit a home run and you might strike out and go back to the dugout. And what good was having faith in that circumstance? So having faith doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's like the guy, you know, the, I don't know, this just came to my head. I, I don't have this in my notes, but, you know, they, the, the person, you know, they have the, they used to go around with the uh, shows and there'd be the guy who would catch a bullet with his teeth. And you think, how did he learn that he had that trait? Like, and actually it's a, it's a, a comedian that told us, but he talks about how did he learn, you know, at some point did somebody just take a bullet and throw it at him and throw it at him to catch it. And then they got out and they said, next one's going to come a little bit faster. Okay. <laughs> Try to think real quick, you know, but have faith. You, you know, you, can, you might be able to catch it, just have faith. Is faith in that context any good? No. No, faith is not just this nebulous idea. What is faith? The, our our, our knee-jerk reaction when someone says, have faith, our knee-jerk reaction should be these two questions. Faith for what? And faith in what to have that happen? Faith for what? And faith in what? And this is where hearing from Paul is very helpful. I want to invite you to turn back to the book of Galatians in your Bible. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 1155. To go back to Galatians chapter 3. This is where hearing to answer these questions, faith for what and faith in what specifically? From the mind of Paul, what, what, what are we as God's people living by faith in what and for what? If we were to do some biblical theology, we could go all the way back to Abraham. Abram, there in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's called. We read about him in Hebrews chapter 11. He's called to go to a land. He doesn't know where he's going, but by faith, Abraham leaves the land that he knows to go to the place where God has called him to. By faith, Abraham leaves, and Abraham is often called the father of the faith. And that isn't just because he's the, 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 the instigator or the start of the Jewish faith. It's because he, there, if you go back to Genesis 12, we, we see that Abraham is righteous before God because he believed God's promises. It is, this, it is this new idea that comes onto the scenes that it isn't about Abraham's obedience to God that makes him righteous. It is Abraham's belief in God's promises to him that God then counts Abraham as righteous. He's the father of faith. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham believes it, and he is, his faith, that belief, is credited to, credited to him as righteousness. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3. 
he says, verse 7, uh, or verse 5, does he, who's, he's speaking about their salvation. He's not happy with the Galatians in chapter 3. He starts out by saying, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That's not a compliment. <laughs> and he's saying, what's gone wrong with you people? If you started by faith, right, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have, the answer, obviously, is by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by believing God and His promises, are you now going back to just keeping the law? How foolish can you be? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, and here he quotes, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Descendants of Abraham are not those just biologically descended from Abraham. The descendants of Abraham, and Paul teaches us from the New Testament, this, the descendants of Abraham are those who live by faith. Jesus, being a true descendant of Abraham, is the seed of Abraham, that as we believe in him, we are adopted into the family of God. We become part of the people of God under this, for under this canopy of Abraham because we are brought in by faith. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We are the ones, those are the ones of faith that the promises of Abraham belong to. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Going on in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one that does them shall live by them. Undergirding this, this whole I desire, that th this for what there's this desire to be out from underneath the curse of God. There, there is this desire that, and this knowledge that we in our natural state do not have good standing with God. That's probably one of the biggest worldview differences between our time and their time. I, and I, that's kind of a radical statement if you didn't hear me say that. One of the biggest worldview differences between that generation that Paul is writing to and our generation today is they lived with a sense in which God was holy and not happy with them as sinners. We today live with a totally different mindset. Our, our modern society and our modern uh, nominal Christianity kind of puts out the idea that God is kind of the big grandpa in the sky and your sin, while he may not like it, ultimately he isn't really all that unhappy and everything is really okay. For a society that is steeped in Christianish ideas, the Bible's authority on the state of man is almost unknown to us. They were aware something has gone wrong. And that problem is not just out in the world. Something has gone wrong in me. 
The things I want to do, I end up not doing. The things I know I should do, I end up transgressing. The things I know that I shouldn't do, I end up doing them anyway. And they have a real struggle with what is going on in my life. The question that troubles most of us today is, is more, why aren't we happy with ourselves? And less, what do I do? Because God, what if God is not happy with me? We, we are obsessed with what if I'm not happy with me? And we give almost no thought to the serious question, is God happy with me? One of those questions carries more weight than the other one. We're obsessed with trying to discern why we aren't happy with ourselves. And the more important question is, why isn't God happy with us? The whole concept, boy, it is going like wildfire these days of the, the quest for self-love. We have self-love as a virtue now. That, that loving yourself becomes almost primary in importance in virtues. When in, his, in ages past, self-love is a huge vice, is a real problem. Those who loved themselves over everything else were a, were a pariah to society. But we have so flipped the script that we become obsessed with, we have all kinds of books and articles, but learning about self-love, loving self this, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reverse of, of absolutely the biblical picture. The main question is not love for self, but am I in a place in which love for God can actually come to me? The question is not how do I make myself happy with myself, but am I right before the eternal God of the universe, the holy and righteous God who runs all things, who one day I will give an account to, is he happy with me? Does that question ever cross our minds? And it doesn't in the world today. Let's just say you can make yourself as happy with yourself as possible. Let's say you score a 100% on the self-love exam. You love yourself more than anybody else can love themselves. You, you, you are number one in your own mind. What good will that do you when you die and you face a holy God who made you and is worthy of all of your love and affection? How, what, what profit will that bring you then? None. None. It will bring you none. If you are still in your sin and God has wrath towards you because of your sin, this happiness and this self-love that you've created will do you no good. It will not, it will not, that happiness will not last. So we all have to recognize that something is wrong with man. That's easy to look around and say something has gone wrong. We are not as good as we could be. But we've given into the modern notion of man that views humanity as essentially noble and good, but who unfortunately at times doesn't live up to his potential, makes mistakes, but essentially is good. But in contrast to that idea, Scripture tells us that humanity, we are all by nature children of wrath. That Scripture tells us that humanity at its core is broken and as a result lives at war with God and with each other. Whatever good you see is the grace of God breaking through and restraining the evil that naturally resides in our fallen humanity. And as a result of this desperate state, we stand condemned we stand condemned by God. We are in big trouble. And when you see that reality, 
Then you may begin to ask, what can be done to remedy this problem? How do you answer such a question? And for some, there really isn't even a question. There isn't even a thought in our heads. But we're simply trying to figure out, most are just trying to figure out how to unleash what's already great inside of them. But if you can join me for just a moment in trusting the Scripture's diagnosis of our natural state, that we aren't just trying to unleash the beauty within us, we're trying to fix all that's broken and ugly and hateful against God within us. What can be done? What can be done? And this is what Paul is wrestling with and why he digs in to the statement from Habakkuk. He speaks about the righteousness that came to Abraham as being a righteousness that was given by faith. Abraham hears the promises of God. Abraham heard those promises. Abraham believes those promises. Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham receiving this label of righteous by faith in God is huge. Because Paul says in, in verse three, chapter 3, verse 10, everyone who relies upon works of the law is damned, is condemned. Everyone who, who depends upon their own merit is, is fails fails the test, is condemned, is cursed. We are under God's curse. So the idea, this, this promise that those who would by faith cling to God and his promises could be made righteous is huge. Because if it's up to works, you're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. I'm sorry, sorry I pointed the fingers at you all. We're all in big trouble. If it's up to doing good, good things, we're all in big trouble. No one is justified before God by the law. The righteous live by faith. So the answer of faith for what is this? It is faith for God to deliver us from his curse and to make us righteous before him. The righteous live by faith. Faith for what? Faith that God would take us out from underneath his wrath, his curse, his condemnation, and that we might be righteous before him. But then we have to get to the other question. Okay, faith for that, but then faith in what? And we could go on in Galatians, but let's look at the other passage where Paul quotes Habakkuk, and it's Romans chapter 1. Famous passage. You probably know it once we get into it, but this is page 11. 16 in your pew Bible, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says that this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Basically, it begins by faith, and it's faith all the way through. It doesn't start with faith and then get finished with works. It's from faith. It's for faith. It's faith all the way through. What is this? What is the it of verse 16? For in it... So if, if the for is for God to deliver us from the curse and to make us righteous, and it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed or given, made plain from faith, the righteous live by faith, what is the it? We'll go up to verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it. What is the it? It is the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So we could go many places to talk about what that gospel is. But since we're in Romans, flip back chapter 3, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God. Again, this concept, you see how 
We're, we're obsessed. We're, we're talking a lot in the Bible about righteousness. There's a problem. We're not righteous before God. And how do we get made righteous before God? We've got a big problem to solve. Paul is talking. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. means apart from works, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This righteousness, 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Not works, not some list of rule-keeping, but by repenting and trusting, believing God and his promises, just like Abraham did. The what for in the faith is is that God will not count our sins against us. And the, the, the faith in what is faith in God's promises given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith for what? That we'd come out from a condemnation. That God's wrath would no longer be against us. Faith in what? That this gospel, what Jesus has done, accomplishes this for us. Lives the righteous life we should have lived. Dies the death that we deserve so that every one of us, turning from our sin, confessing it, Looking to Christ and his righteousness, his death on the cross as our substitute, forgiven of your sin, made righteous in God's sight, given eternal life, blessings in abundance, guaranteed future, that when this whole big mess shakes out, might be a mess along the way, but when this mess shakes out and Christ returns, none who are his will be disappointed in the final analysis. Faith in what? that those gospel promises come to us through Jesus Christ. The righteous live by faith. But as we close, just these last few minutes, I want to talk about and focus in on one word here. He says that the statement is that the righteous live by faith. Live by faith. Earlier we read through Hebrews 11, you know, that famous, the faith chapter there. And we described all sorts of biblical characters who lived by faith. By faith, Abraham did so and so. By faith, Moses did so and so. By faith, Rahab did so and so. Contrast the idea of living by faith with the idea of having faith. The righteous live by faith. Faith is what they live by. And then there are the, and that contrasted with the idea of having faith, having faith. I think that in our society today, we are far more comfortable in our walk with Jesus with the idea of having faith. It's something we possess at some level. The righteous have faith. We kind of like that one. That sounds okay because it can kind of keep in its little corner. The righteous have faith. They, they look to Jesus for their salvation, for their justification. They have faith. In our current cultural moment, it's actually understandable for people to have faith. The righteous have faith. Even in talking to my unbelieving friends, they'll applaud and, and, and respect the idea of having faith. But to live by faith, that it is this, this centering concept of who you are, to live by faith is a different understanding on the essential and critical nature of faith. 
Uh, I have telescope. Actually, my, my brother gave it to me. His, his, he had bought it years ago for his family, and they didn't use it. So he, I have a telescope at home. And um, I actually have bought, um, like, a, like, astronomy textbooks, like, you know, that you would actually go to the college where you get, and I'd spend the money on used textbooks. And, and like, can't make it one or two pages into them. They're really hard. <laughs> Anytime you start doing math by using astronomical, the AU, it's, it's nuts. But, so, um, but I, I have coffee table books that talk about the stars and pictures. I listen to astronomy podcasts. I have lots of interests. I, I go out at night and I look at the stars. I have all of these, these things, but I couldn't by any means convince any of you that I'm an astronomer. I'm not, certainly not an astrophysicist. I have many astronomy interests. I have, I have these interests, but I certainly don't live by them. There's a difference between having some interests and living by them. I'm far, we, it's far more comfortable to have an interest in something than to live by something. And I think in many ways, Jesus and his church, faith in his gospel message is far more comfortable for us to have in some interest than to truly live by it. To think you can just take this big news of the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has done and put in some corner of your life is to not see the gravity of the gospel. It's like taking a nuclear reactor and putting it in the corner of your garage and thinking you can just kind of keep it over in the corner. It's going to start affecting everything. Or it's like thinking you can come home with a, a, a Mogwai, a little, little uh, gremlin guy, the little, does anyone remember Gremlins movie? You know, you bring him home and I'm just going to keep him in a little cage, everything's going to be fine. And this is 85, 86, any 80s kids? Anyone remember? Okay, but it goes bad, right? You think, oh, I can just bring home Gizmo and here, everything's going to be fine. The little kid's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Older people, they don't know. Anyway, you know, you can't, those are destructive forces, but it, it's, it's like getting married and, and keeping it secret. How, does that, how is that even going to work? That you change the very existence of who you are, but I'm just going to keep it in a corner and go continue my life. Like I'm going to have a wife, but I'm not going to be married? How would that even work? Or it's like we, we know this example of there are people who have children and there are people who are parents. You, who have, there's a difference between having kids and being a parent, like living out of this existence. He, the Habakkuk and the writer of Hebrews and Paul speak of faith in this same way. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has done is far too great to be something that you just have. It's far too great to just be something you stick in a corner of your existence and then go and do your own life, do your own thing, but I, I have my faith over here. It is far too great to be something you just have. It is a truth that once seen is to be lived by. Jesus is too, too great to just be a component you add to your team. All kinds of teams in the trading season, you know, oh, I get notifications from my Google alerts. Oh, so-and-so is added to this roster and so-and-so and oh, they let this person go and they're doing all this shifting and changing pieces. Jesus is not just some component you add to your team to maybe help you reach some better goal. He's too great to just be something you add to your team. Jesus is not, he is the centerpiece. He's not just an important part of life. He is the Lord of life. This doesn't mean 
necessarily that you sell everything and volunteer to become missionaries, though for some I suppose it could. But what it means is that the way you live your life becomes different in every arena. The way you work changes. The way you interact with your employees or fellow employees change. The way that you parent changes. The way that you're a kid changes. The way that you respect those who are in authority over you, it changes. It makes the way that you are a friend changes. Who Christ is and what he becomes is the driving force of your life. Whatever honors the king and advances the kingdom become your primary concern. So, do you just have faith or are you living by faith? Do you have faith? The righteous live by faith. How would you answer that? There are a couple of common and bad answers to this question. Do you just have faith or are you living by faith? One, one bad way to answer this is there is no way I could do what Darren is talking about, living by faith. I have too many things going on. You know what? That sounds great for some people, but uh, I'm not going to be able to, ach to achieve that. So, yeah, I'm out. I'm, I just, I don't think that's, I, all it's going to produce in me is despair, and just frustration, resignation. Maybe you feel that way. That's, I don't know. That's, so that's for super Christians. I'm not sure that that's me. That's one bad way to answer. The other bad way to answer is to think that you are living by the example of faith that others should get behind. You're like, yeah, I don't, I am this one, Darren. That's right. I'm killing it. All you people need to get in order. All you people having faith, I'm living by faith. That's another bad way to view it. If you see no areas in your life where there's a struggle to put sin to death, it isn't because you've been made holy, it's because you've been made blind. So we all sit at this, do we have faith? Do we live by faith? Hopefully we all sit with the, with the recognition, I tend, I tend towards this, and man, I want to be this. I tend towards the easy road, but man, I want to be this. We all sit in the same place in great need of God's grace and strength. And that's a great place to be. None of you are killing it. None of us. Sorry, I said you. None of us are killing it, living by faith. I don't just have faith. I, none of us are here. None of us are here. But you're in a great place because God's grace is abundant. Bring your need to him. As the final lines of the hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The psalmist, the, the writer's just talking about, I feel the pull to just want to have faith. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I don't have it all nailed down. But God, I want to march that direction. And God, have mercy. Help me to get there. What we do in communion is remembering the source of that grace coming to us. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for sinners. Not simply for them to have a little bit of him, just enough to get by, but so that they may come and be fully satisfied. So I'm inviting you to join me today, turning from divided affections 
and looking to Christ alone for our joy, satisfaction, and for life itself. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the ways that we have and do try to keep you partitioned to a part of our life and, and wrestle against that pull between wanting to be yours and wanting to keep for ourselves and the frustration and the dissatisfaction ultimately that that leads to. Father, this morning as we come to communion, pray that you would bring conviction of sin. We would turn from our self-satisfaction. We would turn from our self-reliance. And we would rejoice in the God of grace, the God that you are, the God who has sent his son, so that everyone by faith could look to him, be forgiven, made righteous in your sight, and truly given life. God, may we see that, may we embrace it, and may our lives be changed in such a way to never be the same, that you are not just a part of who we are. You don't just deserve a segment of our lives, but you are life itself. Help us, God, to see it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.